Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's my great pleasure to introduce Cass Sunstein, the Robert Walmsley University professor here at Harvard and founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy. He's published numerous articles and books, including Risk and Reason, Why Societies Need Dissent, Laws of Fear, Beyond the Precautionary Principle, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, and Conspiracy Theories and Other Dangerous Ideas. In 2018, he was awarded the Holberg Prize, which is awarded annually to a scholar for outstanding contribution to research in the arts and humanities, social science, law, or theology. His book on freedom, which he's uh, here to share with us today, is based on his Holberg lecture, which was delivered in June 2018. So I turn it over to you. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Be. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every it is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if you could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever? Well, it didn't happen, and here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will be We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, yes we, we can. can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring me down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, to public Access, Access America. America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'll tell you something about what you're about to hear. Uh, this is the closest thing to a sermon that I will ever deliver. So usually a law professor, I think, ought to um, give you some empirical or analytic claims, uh, which have maybe slides or conclusion argument. And this is a little bit that, but a little bit sermon. 
And I'll tell you the origins. When I got this prize, which involves not just law, but philosophy and literature, theology, and others, I thought I didn't want to do what is often done in prize talks, which is to say, I wrote this paper 20 years ago, and here's why, and thank you for liking it. Uh, I thought I'd try to do something that would give me a little more self-respect, maybe, than that. And what flashed into my mind was a scene in uh, the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line, where Johnny Cash uh, goes to Sam Phillips, who discovered Elvis Presley, and uh, sings in front of Sam Phillips some song about some cliche about how he feels God within, something like that. And Sam Phillips says, go home. And uh, Johnny Cash says, what? You didn't let us finish the song. And Sam Phillips says, go home. You don't have a career in music. And Johnny Cash says, what are you talking about? And Sam Phillips says, well, let me put it to you this way. If you had one song that you would sing that reflected your place on earth, your time, and what you cared about and what mattered to you, uh, would you sing the song you sang? The song you just sang, I've heard a thousand times. Everyone sings that song. Can you sing a song that really says something that if you were in a gutter, in a ditch, uh, and telling God what your life was like, dying, what would you sing? And Johnny Cash says, do you have anything against the Air Force? And Sam Phillips says, no. And Johnny Cash says, well, I do. And then he sings one of his great prison blues songs, which is real and comes from a place that he cares about. So this isn't, you know, within a zillion miles as good as a prison blues song by Johnny Cash. But if there was one song that I was going to sing, if I was asked, this would uh, be pretty close. Okay, let's begin with two epigraphs, shall we? Uh, the first you've probably heard. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You know what this is from? I hope you do. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. That's from the book of Genesis. The second epigraph is from a novel called Possession by A.S. Byatt. And it's after another kind of faithful, fateful choice, faithful in its way, unfaithful in another way. And it did involve a romance. In the morning, the whole world had a strange new smell. It was the smell of the aftermath, a green smell, a smell of shredded leaves and oozing resin, of crushed wood and splashed sap, a tart smell, which bore some relation to the smell of bitten apples. It was the smell of death and destruction, and it smelled fresh and lively and hopeful. By it in this passage is speaking of a free choice and a kind of fall, and her tale really overlaps with that of Genesis. But by its account is more upbeat, yes? It smelled fresh and lively and hopeful. 
let's be clear, every human being is blessed to experience that smell. So my questions here are when uh, people's free choices will make their lives go better. The liberal political tradition has a pretty simple answer to that question. Yes, they will, usually. Novelists, psychologists, theologians, and artists tend to disagree. And they're right to say that the tradition of liberal politics is too simple on this count. And parenthetically, let me note that there's a big debate in political theory and law and philosophy, moral philosophy, between advocates of negative freedom, stay away government, and advocates of positive freedom, help me enjoy the preconditions of freedom. I hope it will be clear that this is uh, meant as, uh, what's the right word, a, 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 an effort to go beyond that tired debate and to say something that has um, a little more edginess, maybe, than that old one. What I want to do uh, is put a bright spotlight on a single problem, and that's the problem of navigability. And to suggest that we, lawyers, journalists, ordinary citizens, economists, and psychologists, have paid much too little attention to the problem of navigability. If you can't navigate your life, you're less free. All over the world, people who are facing hardship, mental illness, poverty, chronic pain, inequality, are often unable to solve one problem, the problem of navigability. They need help. Those who are interested in freedom, 21st century style, should be focusing, I suggest, on the problem of navigability. OK, to get a purchase on that, I have to say a little bit about nudges and nudging. Did you think you were going to get away without words on that? <laughs> In daily life, a GPS device is an example of a nudge. It respects freedom of choice. You can ignore it if you like but it helps you to get where you want to go. Other policies, by contrast, are mandates and bans. They are like a GPS device. They may be economic incentives, like fees or taxes. They play important roles, but they are not nudges. They eliminate or severely skew freedom of choice. Nudges, by contrast, impose no burdens of a material kind and give no material benefits to anyone. They are economically neutral. With respect to the world's most serious problems, the use of nudges remains in its very early days, just out of infancy. We're going to see a ton in the future, and the impact isn't going to be little. Here's a story told by the novelist David Foster Wallace, who started a graduation speech this way. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The fish, the older one, nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Wallace is telling a tale about choice architecture, the background against which 
human and fish choices are made. Choice architecture is inevitable whether or not we see it, and it influences us. Weather is itself a form of choice architecture because it influences what people decide. On snowy days, like maybe tomorrow, people are especially likely to buy cars with four-wheel drive, which they return to the market unusually quickly. People can't live without some kind of weather, and nature nudges. The law is going to nudge us, even if it allows us to have a lot of flexibility. I think the depth of Wallace's little tale is its uh, indication. The choice architecture is inevitable, even if we don't see it, even if we take it as part of life's furniture, even if it is nameless. We can't wish it away. Any store, real or online, has to have a design. Some products we see first, others last. Television stations are assigned different numbers, and astonishingly, the number matters even when the costs of switching are really low. People choose stations with lower numbers. Any website has a design which will affect what and whether people choose. Nudges to be worth embracing are typically designed to increase the likelihood that people's free choices are going to improve their welfare. Thaler, my co-author, and I urge that the goal of nudging is to make choosers better off as judged by themselves. We didn't put a spotlight on the problem of navigability. I think that's the main gap in our book, and I'm trying to uh, do that a bit here and connect it to larger themes. Social planners might have their own ideas about what would make choosers better off, but the lodestar here in this room, in these remarks, is people's own judgments. To be a little more specific, the lodestar is welfare, and people's own judgments are a reasonable, though imperfect way, to test the question whether nudges are increasing their welfare. Okay, this claim goes directly back to John Stuart Mill, who argued too simply, but it's a good start, that individuals are in a unique position to know what will improve their welfare and that outsiders are going to blunder. Mill says, and it's nice to think, I think of Genesis in this context because it's a pleasing complication. Mill insists that the individual is the person most interested in his own well-being and the ordinary man or woman has means of knowledge immeasurably surpassing those can, that can be possessed by anyone else. When society seeks to overrule the individual's judgment, Mill says, it does so on the basis of general presumptions, and these may be altogether wrong, and even if they are right, are as likely as not to be misapplied to individual cases. Okay, take this as, in a nutshell, the welfarist case for freedom of choice, which is epistemic. It stresses how everyone in this room has more clarity about what will produce your welfare in the next week or month or year than anybody else on the planet. That's Mill's epistemic argument. Mill concludes that if the goal is to ensure that people's lives go well, the best solution is for public officials to allow people to find their own path. 
Okay, here's an objection. People need a GPS device. Many forms of choice architecture, if they are freedom friendly, make it easier for people to get to their preferred destination, and they don't know how. Life can be tough to navigate, and helpful choice architecture is a crucial way of promoting simpler navigation. Okay, for poor people and many people in foreign, poor nations, this is a horrifying problem. I was recently in Argentina and in domains that range from road safety to education to education, the problem of navigability belongs in very bright lights. There's an economist at MIT named Esther DeFlo who has a fantastic book called Poor Economics that's written as an economics book that's well written would be. That is kind of dry and clear. Economics book, A plus, kind of dry and clear. But in oral remarks, at one point she got more animated discussing a central thesis of her book. We tend to be patronizing about the poor in a very specific sense which is that we tend to think, why don't they take more responsibility for their lives? What we are forgetting is that the richer you are, the less responsibility you need to take for your own life because everything is taken care of for you. And the poorer you are, the more you have to be responsible for everything about your life. Stop berating people for not being responsible and start instead to think of ways of providing the poor with the luxury the rest of us have which is a lot of decisions are taken for us. If we do nothing, we are on the right track. For most of the poor, if they do nothing, they are on the wrong track. In my terms here, the problem is that they have to find the right track to identify the right doctor, to find the right job, to get help in taking care of their kids. Good cities are easily navigated. So are good airports so are good hotels, so are good websites. We might think of efforts to increase navigability as a form of means paternalism. A GPS has no quarrel with your judgment about your preferred destination, it respects that. But it helps you to get where you want to go. Many interventions having nothing to do with literal navigation can be understood in similar terms. I confess parenthetically that part of the emotional wellspring for these remarks is international travels where to navigate a shower is really, really hard, meaning to know how to turn it on so it is hot and has the right, okay, from the expressions on your faces, I'm seeing that I was right to take the advice of one reviewer and essentially to eliminate that from the book. It's too crazy an example. Okay, a great deal of attention in recent years has been focused on the idea of subjective well-being, otherwise known as happiness. In many nations, unhappiness is a product of mental illness, anxiety, and depression. In others, it's a product of unemployment. Increases in navigability can ensure that those who suffer from mental illness get help. Increases in navigability help people find jobs. With those approaches, freedom is hardly compromised. It's increased and so is welfare. Now the suggestion is this is Mill's blind spot. Mill didn't see this as a problem. 
And the suggestion is that increases in navigability are compatible with the kind of moral foundations of his commitment to freedom, but they fill in a gap that leads to unfreedom for those who have freedom of choice. Okay, consider some stylized examples. Luke, let's call him, has heart disease. He needs to take various medication. He wants to do that, but he's forgetful. His doctor is now sending him text messages. As a result, he takes his medications, and his life expectancy is a lot higher. He's glad he's receiving the messages. Meredith has a weight problem. She's aware of that fact, but she doesn't want to stop eating the food she enjoys. After a new law, restaurants in her city, let's call it Los Angeles, have clear calorie labels telling her of the caloric content of various options. She's choosing low-calorie offerings more, and she's losing weight. She's really glad to see those calorie labels. OK, in these cases, the relevant inter intervention increases navigability, and people's choices are being uh, improved by their own lights. If we understand the as-judged-by-themselves criterion by reference to people's own judgments, the criterion is met. I have a number for you right now, and it's 9.78 billion. That number, 9.78 billion, is the number of hours and paperwork burdens the American government puts on the American people. Now, I have to have a footnote, because every talk needs a footnote. That's part of our contracts. And it says, first, the annual report of the US management, the, the, uh, the Office of Management, uh, Office of Management and Budget, the annual report has that number in it, and it's from 2016. But the footnote adds, it hasn't been updated since, but there's a daily count that the government includes. It's somewhat less official. It's up to 11.3 billion now. Now, we can think of those billions of hours in paperwork imposition as sludge, where sludge is often a terrible obstacle to navigability. It makes it hard for people to get to vote, for people to get the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is probably the most successful anti-poverty program in the United States, for people to get occupational licenses, for people to get health care, for people to get educational benefits for their kid, for people to get help in multiple public and private domains. There ought to be sludge audits undertaken by every department of the federal and state governments that impose significant amounts of sludge with the goal of sludge audits decreasing obstacles uh, to navigability. OK, now I'm going to shift gears a bit to talk about self-control. Economists and psychologists speak of unrealistic optimism and present bias, which injure people's capacity to help their future self. Psychologists also speak of system one, the automatic uh, intuitive system of the human mind, and system two, the more deliberative, reflective system. A little story, I have a nine-year-old boy named Declan who loves toys. When we pass a toy store, he wants to stop. One day, I told him, as any good father would, what I've just told you about the difference between the two systems. And I explained to him that while his system one wants toys, 
His system, too, is well aware that he has plenty, and there's no need for more. For a few weeks, he understood the point, and it helped a little bit. But after a month, he asked me, Daddy, do I even have a system, too? <laughs> My little daughter, by the way, who's six years old, recently, within the last six weeks, erupted at the dinner table, apropos of I don't know what, System one is crazy. <laughs> Where did she get that? OK, self-control problems raise serious challenges. One question is whether people who indulge themselves today or this month suffer from a self-control problem or instead have a pretty good mantra, enjoy life now. This is not a rehearsal. Another question is whether purported solutions to self-control problems will make the situation better rather than worse. Some cures are worse than the disease. Consider for a moment, if you would, these haunting, ambivalent words from the heroine of the novel Possession, with which I started, Charlotte Lamott, who writes to her dying lover with whom she had an illicit affair. His name is Randolph Ashe. And here's the quote. I would rather have al lived alone if you would have the truth. But since that might not be and is granted to almost none, I thank God for you. If there must be a dragon, I thank God that he was you. Readers of Genesis have long pondered whether the choices of Adam and Eve in the garden reflected a fatal inability to resist temptation the conventional and most simple and least interesting view, I think, or something very different, such as an exercise of God-given autonomy or an honorable God-given desire for knowledge, and in that sense, freedom. Was the serpent only or altogether a villain? Was he a servant of God? Was he a villain at all? The conventional view has triumphed in most circles, and let's just say it's probably right, but the appeal of the alternative view accounts for the enduring power of the tale of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? If the simpler view were clearly right, it would be a cartoon. Notwithstanding these debates and Lamotte's ambivalence about her illicit relationship, there's no question that many people agree before and after the fact that interventions can help them overcome self-control problems, even if they preserve freedom of choice. Addicts um, often describe themselves as enslaved, and they face a problem of navigability. Often it's said an addict is like a blind person who can't see the way out of a place without some assistance. Some simple cases, Ted smokes cigarettes. He wishes that he hadn't started. He's having a hard time quitting. His government recently imposed a new requirement, which is that cigarette packages have to be accompanied by graphic images showing people with horrific health problems, including lung cancer. Ted can't bear to see those images. He quits, and he's glad. Joan is a student at a large university. She drinks a lot. She enjoys it, but not that much. And she's worried that her drinking is impairing her 
educational performance and her health. She says that she'd like to scale back, but for reasons that she doesn't entirely understand, she's found that really hard. Her university recently embarked on a campaign to reduce drinking in which it accurately notes that four out of five students on campus drink only twice a month or less. Informed of the social norm, Joan finally resolves to cut back on her drinking. She does, and she's glad. Ted and Joan can be seen as planners with second-order preferences and doers with first-order preferences. They have preferences about their preferences. The intervention helps to strengthen the hand of the planner. We should underline here the fact that when outsiders conclude that choosers suffer from a self-control problem, they ought to be very humble. Choosers might not, in fact, be adversely affected by present bias. They might adore what they are doing, even if it harms their future self. And they might be making a rational or rational enough trade-off between now and later. Consider a fabulous meal, a wild night off, two weeks off, an apparently incautious, incautious love affair. Life is not a rehearsal, and planners need to do. The only point is that in important cases, self-control problems are serious and real and devastating, and choosers will acknowledge that fact. If we asked everyone in this room to raise his or her hand, if someone in your family has suffered from a self-control problem leading to serious illness or death, the number would be very high, predictably. So the stakes aren't low. Solutions to self-control problems require GPS devices of a kind. And those devices help people to go where they want to, at least on reflection. They promote freedom. This is the gap to which I'm trying to draw attention that addiction is the most severe example of a self-control problem, and helping people to overcome it solves a navigability problem, thus taking people out of a kind of jail. For choosers who face self-control problem, the underlying challenge is distinctive. It's not in any sense a problem of insufficient knowledge, and they recognize that fact. But recall Lamott's words. Her system, one, did not regret what happened between her and her lover. And sometimes system one rules the roost. In the hardest cases, it's not clear if people have antecedent preferences at all. We're speaking here of preferences that are endogenous in the sense that they're endogenous to the relevant choice architecture. So I'm hoping the cases of simple navigability and self-control are relatively easier. Now we're talking about cases where preferences are malleable and they don't have the kind of fixity that makes the GPS analogy sufficient or even correct. It's going to disintegrate here. Here are some cases. George cares about the environment. He also cares about money. He currently gets electricity from coal. He knows that coal is not exactly good for the environment, but it's cheap. And he doesn't bother to switch to wind, which would be slightly more expensive. He's content with the current situation. Last month, his government imposed an automatic enrollment rule on electricity providers. 
people will receive energy from wind and pay a slight premium unless they choose to switch. George doesn't bother to switch. He says that he now likes the situation of automatic enrollment. He approves of the policy, and he improves of his own enrollment. Got the case? George is happy either way. We can't talk about a GPS. Case two, Mary is automatically enrolled in a bronze healthcare plan. As the name suggests, it's less expensive than silver and gold, but also less comprehensive in its coverage, and it has a higher deductible. Mary prefers bronze, the cheaper plan. She has no interest in switching. In a parallel world, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Netflix has 1,001 shows about parallel worlds, worlds in which, in one of them, it's exactly like this room, but these are blue. That's not an interesting parallel world. In another parallel world, it's exactly like this, but we're all speaking Russian because the Cold War went the other way. That's crazy, but a little more interesting. Okay, but back to Mary. In a parallel world, Mary is automatically enrolled in a gold healthcare plan, more expensive than silver and bronze, but also more comprehensive in coverage, and it has a lower deductible. Mary prefers gold and has no interest in switching. The case of Mary is identical to the case of George in the sense that her preference, and we could speak of values as well as preferences, is endogenous to the choice architecture. That's why we can't speak of navigability anymore. We don't have a preferred destination with which we can work. A note on parallel worlds, science fiction writers like to speak of them, showing that with a little twist or a small alteration, our lives, our cities, our nations, our entire world might be very different. Some words from Possession, the novel, at a very haunting moment in the novel. There are things that happen and leave no discernible trace, are not spoken or written of, though it would be very wrong to say that subsequent events go on indifferently, all the same, as though such things had never been. Each of us in our own lives can maybe think of those things. Okay, parallel worlds are intriguing for many reasons, and the very idea is, I think, deep because it highlights the omnipresence of contingency. One such reason is that we, you and I, might have been or be quite happy in multiple worlds, even if we're pretty happy or really happy in our own. Here's the point. For the as-judged-by-themselves standard, that's a serious problem. It's going to be indeterminate. People are going to be happy either way. History is only run once, but some interventions literally create parallel worlds. In the cases of Mary and Thomas, they appear to lack an antecedent preference. What they prefer is an artifact of the default rule. The choice depends on what the intervention or architecture looks like. People's preferences are constructed by them. After being intervened on, they will be happy and possibly grateful. One reason might be learning. Another reason might be reduction of cognitive dissonance. People might reduce dissonance in a way that makes them satisfied with the new status quo, whatever it is. 
If so, it's really hard to see the as judged by themselves criterion as sufficient because by hypothesis, people are satisfied only because dissatisfaction is unpleasant or unbearable and because they'd be satisfied either way. In some cases, people might have an antecedent preference, but the intervention might change it so that they will be happy and possibly grateful even if they did not want to be intervened on in advance. So these are cases where, where we're fine with the status quo. It might be something small. It might be something large. There's an intervention that changes something in a small way or large way. Afterwards, people are extremely glad. The as judged by themselves criterion is met. It's not a navigability problem. Is that a justified intervention? Things are getting complicated here. I think the best way into the complication is to talk about cases involving big decisions, sometimes called transformative experiences, in which people's identity and their preferences and values are at stake. Once people make certain decisions or are nudged or architected to make them, what they care about and who they deeply are are different from what they were before. Okay, this is an area which is extremely important and interesting in its own right, but also has general implications. If people are deciding whether to get married, to have children, to change occupations, to change cities, their preferences and values might be altered as a result to convert on religious grounds, to convert maybe their political convictions. Things turn round and those decisions redefine who they are at their core. That's a very hard question to evaluate in normative terms, whether they are well off, better off, before or after, because who they are has changed. Words from possession. This is where I have been coming to, always, since my time began. And when I go away from here, this will be the midpoint to which everything ran before and from which everything will now run. But now, and this is Randolph Ash speaking to his lover Charlotte, but now, my love, we are now, and those other times are running elsewhere. In extreme and less extreme cases, application of the as judged by themselves criterion gets hard. Choice architects cannot simply claim to be vindicating choosers' preferences. It's not a case where people know their preferred destination. If we look after the fact, people do think that they are better off, and in that sense, the criterion is met. But is that enough? I think the challenge is that however people in such circumstances are intervened on, they're going to agree that they are better off. How shall we evaluate the intervention? In my view, there's no escaping something which is really hard, a welfareist analysis. We have to look at the two different worlds and ask what kind of approach makes people's lives go better. There's no escaping that question. It may be the strictures on government justify a presumption one way or the other, but from the standpoint of political theory, normative thought, thinking which kind of life is better from the first person perspective, you're the decider, or from the third person perspective, you're the friend, the advisor, there's no escaping the welfareist analysis. Okay, one final question. 
Should we depart from the as-judged-by-themselves standard? Should we reject Mill's claim that for epistemic reasons, so long as there's no harm to others, people get to choose at least their preferred destination? So qualifying Mill but adding the navigability is filling that gap. Should we be with Mill and saying people get to choose? If the question is meant to doubt whether people's judgments before the fact are always authoritative with respect to what might makes their lives go better, the answer is simple. No. People might not welcome a mandate even though it is very much in their interests. If the question is whether people's judgments after the fact might be authoritative, the answer is less simple. If we're concerned about people's welfare, it's surely relevant and a terrible sign that people reject a mandate or a ban. In a free society, the presumption can be that they are, must be, that they're right. But if we're speaking about things that severely impair, impair people's health, their mortality is you know, they lose, lose years of life, they suffer. If the issue involves serious harm and the ev if the evidence is overwhelming, we're going to have to abandon the as-judged-by-themselves standard. Reluctantly, but still. Final words. Countless interventions, more every day actually, increase people's navigability writ large in the sense that they help us get where we want to go and therefore enable us to satisfy our antecedent preferences. Many other interventions, and these are also proliferating, thank goodness, help people to overcome self-control problems, are warmly welcomed by choosers, and so are consistent with the as-judged-by-themselves standard. When people lack antecedent preferences, or when those preferences just aren't firm, or when an intervention constructs or alters their preferences, the as-judged-by-themselves standard is a lot harder to operationalize. And if I've been clear, the problem is it doesn't lead to a unique solution. They're OK this way. They're OK that way. The old Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors, which I haven't seen, let's do a remake. She's happy either way, which is better. No escaping the need to ask hard questions about what's her life like in both, the welfarist question. That's the only place we can go. Here are the greatest lines, I think, the first or second greatest poet in the, of the English language, John Milton, wrote when he was blind, so he wrote them uh, in a way that was more difficult for most. In Paradise Lost, a tale of freedom, writing about Adam and Eve, who have succumbed to temptation and lost everything there is, and been expelled by God from the Garden of Eden. And these are the words that came out of Milton's mouth. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Recall finally once more a passage which I think is the same theme 
about what it means to be human. Passage from By Its Possession, which is also a tale of freedom, of a fortunate fall, and By It is insistent, I think, that it's a fortunate fall, and a uniquely human kind of joy. In the morning, the whole world had a strange new smell. It was the smell of the aftermath, a green smell, a smell of shredded leaves and oozing resin, of crushed wood and splashed sap, by its being a little subtle here, a tart smell, which bore some relation to the smell of bitten apples. It was the smell of death and destruction, and it smelled fresh and lively and hopeful. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not yes, we can. what your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. Five poor little children. Yes, we can. tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. You wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. So as you can see, I hope, the, the positive negative liberty, negative liberty uh, is uh, very unclear about how people find the solution to a navigation problem. I'm not clear in my own mind whether a solution to that is positive liberty or it's making negative liberty possible. Probably depends on where the obstacle to navigability comes from. It may be blocking the exercise of negative liberty. Um, so we have that. The literature on addiction and related problems is uh, 
at its best, astonishingly good. And I just got into it for purposes of these, of these remarks. And what makes it so powerful is it portrays the addiction problem as people can't navigate their way out and there's a lack of freedom. Now that is also true for little self-control problems that people know they face. What makes this hard is that what may to you and I, to you and me, look like a self-control problem might be to the agent a wonderful day. And they deserve respect. So it's a, they're having a wild day. It's not a self-control problem. It's Saturday. So that makes that, that one a little harder than the simple navigability issue that I think DeFlow is on top of. The, the area where I kind of blocked is on the case where, where people are architected through you know, how a street looks or how a website looks or how a government information policy looks leaves them happy either way. And it can be on some little thing like a healthcare plan, maybe it's not that little, or on some big thing like what city they're living in. Then the thinking about which is best, I'm bracketing the question of, of fear and distrust of government and just asking the normative question. It's extremely hard to avoid a big welfare question. What way makes people's lives go better? It's a question we each have to ask ourselves for the big ones or the little ones, so long as third parties aren't affected. Was it the, was it the theological thing that's silencing you? Wasn't that? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.